Morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us, we welcome you again. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Here we are, the last Sunday of the year, the Lord willing. Uh, in a few days, we will begin a new year. And if the Lord wills time, we will experience 12 months of 2008. Opportunities abound. The question is, what will we do with them? According to London Telegraph, Mike Shan, who was the 76th man and final man to pass through the tunnel that you are seeing on your screen in just a moment. The mouth of this tunnel is called, the tunnel itself is called Harry. It's a part of the great escape. It's considered the greatest escape ever in human history as it relates and includes also tunnels. In a Nazi war camp, this project lasted over a year in its construction. The code name for three tunnels that began simultaneously was Tom, Dick, and Harry. The tunnel Tom was discovered and, of course, closed down. The tunnel Dick accomplished much. You see, to dig one of these tunnels required the removing of 130 ton of sand. After several months of working, they realized that they had to have somewhere to place the excessive sand, that it was making too much attention in garden spots and on top of the ground. And so Dick became the place that the prisoners would take the sand from Harry and dump it down and fill the tunnel Dick back up. As you see this next screen, you see that they dug 30 feet down. Let's go back to the other screen, I'm sorry. As you see, they dug 30 feet down. This was to avoid mics that were placed to pick up uh, whether or not soldiers were digging. When they dug down, there were two, two rooms, very small rooms. One was a room in which they created a pump create a ventilation system and, of course, pump oxygen into the tunnel. Another room was for storage, to store their forged documents, their civilian clothes, their German officer uniforms, uh, compasses, maps, and etc. Then they began creating the tunnel as it would exit the ground. They actually created an electrical system, electrical lighting. They created a wooden railway system which would expedite the removal of all of the sand and also the 76 men that would escape on March the 24th, 1944, after a year's labor. Mike Shan was the last man to escape that night. You see, all seemed to go well except one flaw. And on this next slide, you see the flaw. The tunnel, the hope, and the design was that it would come out in the middle of the woods, but it fell short of the woods. And so as the men began to escape, the 77th man came out at 5 a.m. in the morning, and he was discovered. Now the shame of all of this is the fact that out of the 76 men that escaped, 73 were recaptured. Uh, The Germans, in an effort to make a statement, decided that 50 of those men would be executed. Now later, these officers were tried for war crimes because of the murder of these 15 airmen, these 50 airmen. You know, as we think about a year's labor, the mastermind that would lead all of this great escape, 
We think what it means to move to something better. Those men knew and believed that there was something better than being a prisoner of war. Those men knew and believed that to have their freedom regained would be worth the effort, the loss of sleep, the, the risk that entailed in digging the tunnel, Harry. I want to ask you something. Do you believe that there's something greater than where you are right now? Do you believe that there are some things that you need to escape from in your life? Maybe there's addiction. Maybe there's bad habits. Maybe there's sin. Maybe it's simply apathy. Maybe, as strange as this sounds, what you need to escape from is being good. What if God called you to be great? And what if you have settled for good? What if God has called you to do greater things and you've settled for average things? If the Lord wills time, you and I will be together again in 52 weeks and we'll discuss 2008. And I want to ask you a question that I hope you allow to sink deep into your meditations over the next few days. Will you be stronger in your spiritual life at the end of 2008 than what you are right now? Have you settled for where you are? Have you settled for where you are and you have no desire to escape? You have no desire to move to something greater? After all, the present sounds pretty good. Hear the words of Jeremiah as he quotes the words from the people of Judah as he says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you know what God is telling Jeremiah to say? Stop trusting in these lying words. How can that be lying words? What's wrong with saying today the same would be? The the temple, the church of the Lord of Christ? What would be wrong if we said today the church of Christ? the church of Christ, the church of Christ, and God would say, stop trusting in those lying words. How can that be lying words? Unless, of course, the one saying them is hollow. There's no heart dedicated to Christ. The individual is just a shell of a Christian that sits in among the church. You see, as we look to Jeremiah's ministry, if you'll remember, the very next book in the Bible is Lamentations. That reminds us of the fact that Jeremiah did much lamenting in his life. He had a very, very hard ministry. You see, in his day, a king that would have been a contemporary would have been Josiah. I need to understand that the northern kingdom had already fallen and that the southern kingdom, Judah, would fall soon. As a matter of fact, much of his prophecy was warning them that the Babylonians were going to come and take over them and destroy many of them and a small remnant of them would be preserved. And so Jeremiah is going about preaching to the people and he's urging them, don't go through with this. Turn your life around. Turn to God. Be spared of the Babylonian captivity. And so just before the text this morning, if you would and still have your Bibles open, look, and this is still on page 672 in your pew Bible, look at verse 1 and 2 where he says that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. 
Can you imagine this morning if, just to imagine what Jeremiah said and what he was asked to do. I want you to imagine this morning when you parked your car, instead of walking into this auditorium as you traditionally would, I want you to imagine that I was standing between your car and the front door. And I literally was saying to you, Mount Juliet, Church of Christ, I want you to hear the words of the Lord. I want you to decide today if you're going to amend your ways. In other words, it's almost as if Jeremiah was told by God, I want you to catch the people before they actually come into the inner courts to worship. And I want you to challenge their hypocrisy. And look at this next slide as we look also to verse 3 and 4 as he says, continuing this speech as he stands in the gate. He stands before they go into their place where they would have worshipped in the inner court. And he says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You see, the reason they were lying words is because these people had never dedicated their heart to God. They had tried to dedicate a temple without dedicating their lives. You see, Manasseh was known and recognized even by God as the most wicked king in Judah. He built idolatry to its height among Judah. There was a second king after him. And then his grandson would be Josiah. Josiah would come in with a heart that wanted to turn back to God, but yet he did not know all of God's ways because God's ways had been destroyed. Scriptures were found. They were presented to Josiah. Josiah began to read the Scriptures and realized that the temple was very important. And so he brought back temple worship, temple sacrifices, temple services, And he went about and he destroyed the idols and he urged the people to come back and be involved in temple worship. Now please note this simple fact. The people destroyed their idols, but they never destroyed the idols of their heart. The people began going to a temple believing that if that physical temple was standing... God was pleased with them, and as long as the physical temple was standing, God would preserve them. That's why Jeremiah speaks God's word by saying, you're believing lying words. In other words, if you believe that just to say the temple of the Lord, or just to walk toward a temple and offer a sacrifice is enough, you're believing lying words. In other words, today, kind of a slang expression that we would use is we'd say, talk is cheap. God is saying, I don't want this hollow life that you're offering to me. As a matter of fact, when we drop down and read verse 8, and by the way, the verses we skipped over are verses where he talks about your day-to-day conduct is breaking the Ten Commandments. And so they were trying to look good, as we would say on Sunday, but yet they were going out and they were violating all of God's will. And notice verse 8. He says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. What is the real profit? What is the real gain? What is the advantage? It's not just in saying the right things. 
And friends, it's not just in showing up on Sunday to say, the church of Christ, the church of Christ, the church of Christ. But the real question is, keep in mind, the church is the people. The real question is, are you the church of Christ means ownership. Are you a person that is owned by Jesus Christ and will your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday prove that you and I are the church of Christ? If not, every time we say it, we're trusting in lying words. Drop back, if you will, to 2 Kings. I'd like for you to notice, Josiah, just one verse. Now, if you're looking back in 2 Kings, you'll notice that Uh, Kings records Josiah for a couple of chapters and it's an awesome study but just for this morning I want you to know the second Kings 23 verse 25 and notice this description of Josiah now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul and with all of his might according to all the law of Moses nor after him did any rise like him Friends, you see why God loved Josiah and you see how Josiah was so different from the people. Friends, when Josiah talked about the temple of the Lord, he had a right to talk about the temple of the Lord because he was one that was wholly dedicated to the Lord. In other words, he loved the Lord, he says here, with all of his heart, his soul, his might. Friends, when I think about a journey with God, I have to realize that the first step is not a physical step. When I think about a journey with God, the first step is, will I give my heart to God? Will I give my soul to God? The people of Judah, if you would have went up to them and asked them, hey, do you believe in the Almighty God? They would have said, yes. Haven't you seen the way we go to the temple of the, God, of, of the Lord? And God would have said, you're not my people. You've never destroyed the idols of your heart. You've never given me your heart. Now, as we read deeper in Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, we see he describes their terrible condition. As a matter of fact, in verse 16 and 17, he even tells, God even tells Jeremiah, there's not even any reason for you to continue praying for these people. In other words, God's opinion is they have moved past the point of return, and they had. Later, Babylon would take over them. But with this leading up, we have a glimpse of what it would have looked like in their day-to-day life. And as we read verse 18 and 19 of Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, I'd like for you to picture this. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Now that's, that's an idol, the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, but they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? In 19, in other words, what the Lord is saying is, you think they're doing me harm? The real answer to that question is, they're doing themselves harm. How are they hurting themselves? They're not only hurting the present generation. Do you see there what is implied in verse 18? Now I want you to imagine, they had a queen of heaven which probably would go back to some of the polygamous uh, ways of, uh, uh, of Egypt where 
when, when we see um, that they had many gods and one of their gods would be a female god that would be uh, considered the queen of heaven. But the Babylonians, they also had a god that they considered the queen of heaven, a goddess of heaven that was uh, second in power to their king, if you will, the greatest god. And so various cultures had various female or goddesses, and we're not exactly 100% sure which one is being spoken of here, but because it's before the Babylonian captivity, it seems that it would probably be from the influence of Egypt. But nevertheless, uh, even Hosea uh, speaks of making cakes. In other words, probably raising cakes, which would lend itself to sexual immorality. And, And you imagine here this picture. Now, does this picture seem odd to you? Here's a father kindling fire for his God, his goddess. But what does he have his children doing? Hey, now I'm going to have to have a lot of sticks to kindle this fire. You see your mother over there, she's kneading the dough because we're about to go to the temple and we're about to worship our goddess, the queen of heaven. I tell you what, children, I want you to run around the edge of the woods and I want you to gather as many sticks as you can. We really need this fire hot because we're about to go worship. And so you, got, you, you have the children gathering the sticks. You have the husband kindling the fire. You have the wife kneading the dough. Why? Usually, parents choose their children's God. Do you remember why God gave the Passover? Remember he talked about the fact that whenever you choose that lamb, that first year lamb without blemish, and you offer it exactly the way God had told them to offer it, he said your children are going to ask you why you do this. I want you to picture another scene that would have been just as realistic as the scene we just seen here of gathering the wood and kneading the dough and, and kindling the fire. Can you imagine this? Children... It's getting close to Passover time. I want you to go out in the field and I want you to help me pick out the best lamb that we've had born this year. Why, Daddy? Why are we picking out the best lamb? Let me tell you what God did for our people as He helped us escape bondage in Egypt. Children tend to have their God chosen by their parents. I know there's exceptions to that. And I know that every one of us has to decide whether or not we're going to build on the foundation that our parents have laid. But the truth is, every parent has placed some kind of foundation underneath their child. In this generation, Jeremiah says, you've brought your children into idolatrous worship. And you're raising them that way. They're going to be idolatrous people. God made the plea over and over throughout the scriptures. I want to mention four or five scriptures to you. And they'll be on the screen. But as we only have time to just mention these. As you think about us choosing our children's God. It's no small thing. Look at Malachi the second chapter. Why did he make them one? One Adam for one Eve. He said in Malachi 2 where they were destroying their homes. Putting away the wife of their youth. He says that they should not do that. That they should remain committed to each other. Husband and wife also in this is that idea of being committed to God because he seeks a godly offspring. How do we choose our children's God to be the almighty God? 
mamas and daddies need to be faithful to each other and faithful to God. And God says that's a foundation that helps us help our children choose the right God. In 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, what about if a believer is married to an unbeliever? Well, here he teaches that if the unbeliever is willing, you remain married to them. Why? Because you might be able to sanctify them by your influence and also your children. That's the only hope they have to be sanctified within your household if you're the only believer. Think how many children this morning will get up across America and they will never have one thought about going to a Bible class or to worship. Why? Because their mamas and daddies got up today and gave no thought of whether or not they'd go to a Bible class or worship. Now think about the thousands of children that will get up and they will go to a Bible class this morning and they will go to worship God this morning. And the reason will be because they had a mother and father that put that foundation as a part of their life. When we look at Proverbs, the 23rd chapter and verse 6, we're reminded to train up a child in the way he should go. And Joshua, the 24th chapter, Joshua, and, and this is interesting when we think about our study here in Jeremiah, you see, they were having the problems from the very time they left Egypt. What Jeremiah is dealing with here is not something new. Do you remember when, when Moses spent what they thought was too much time on Mount Sinai and he comes off the mountain. Do you remember what the people were doing? They were going back to calf worship. And now they're crossing over the river and what do they have a problem with? Joshua's having to challenge them again. Okay, choose. Are you going to go back to the gods like your fathers had over in Egypt? Or are you going to serve the Almighty God? And he closes that by saying, as for me and my house, Joshua says, I'm making a decision for my children today. We're going to serve the Lord. Friends, as we think about this, the Bible is by far the preeminent source. But I want you to think about just what the statistics say. Barna Research says that of the children that grow up attending church at least some time in their life, six out of ten of those will attend as an adult. But now note this fact of children that grow up never attending worship service with a parent, almost 80% of those will never attend worship service as an adult. Four out of five children across America today that their parents have not taken them to worship, four out of five of them will never worship God as long as they live on this earth, statistically. Parents, grandparents, especially parents, I want to ask you this morning, how well are you doing at choosing your children's God? Children will listen to a little bit you say, They're watching everything you do. Hypocrisy is when we say one thing and do another thing. When we're saying we're one way, but the reality is we're living another way. Children don't follow what we say more than they follow what we do. 2008, well, I show my child 
a parent that reads their scriptures. I am excited about 2008. I'm excited about the numerous children that are sitting on the pews this morning and they are going to see their mothers and fathers reading the scriptures every day as we read the Bible together as a church family. Those of you that have younger ones that want to participate, keep in mind that the daily Bible reading has an Old Testament and a New Testament and a short psalm and proverb reading each day. Challenge your younger children to read maybe through proverbs and psalms this year. Or if they're a little bit older, challenge them to read through the New Testament this year. And if they're old enough, challenge them also to read the whole thing, but let them see you doing it. Let them see you as a person that has given their heart to God. Don't try to show your children a shell of Christianity. Don't try to show your children a parent that's saying, the church of Christ, the church of Christ, the church of Christ, because they'll read through it. They know better than you know if you're dedicated to God. Your children will know if you have first given your heart to God. And if you've given your heart to God, You're doing well in choosing your children's God. Do you remember in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, this is where they were challenged to love God with all their heart and soul and mind. And after they were willing to do that, do you remember verse 7? You shall teach them diligently to your children. You know, one of the things I'm afraid we don't emphasize enough is we jump straight to verse 7 and we say, we've got to teach our children the commandments of God. We've got to help our children learn the scriptures. And that's wonderful. But friends, we've got to get this in the right order. God, for a reason, said, I want you first to give your heart, soul, mind, and strength to me. And once you've given yourself to me, then I want you to teach those commandments to your children. But friends, there's a hollow hypocritical ring to a parent that doesn't live it, but says it and says, I want you to follow it. But finally this morning, if you would go back with me to our text to Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, and I'd like for you to notice verse 23 and 24. Notice as he says, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and went backwards and not forward. Where will you be in 2008? Really, what's your commitment? All of us, we've either made a commitment or we haven't. Over the next 12 months, have you committed to take steps forward toward God? Or not? Now let's say you have committed to say, I really want to take steps forward toward God. What could cause you and I, even though we're trying to move forward, to really take steps back? You see, that's what he's talking about in verse 24. These people, they thought they were moving forward. Reality is they moved back. He said, you didn't obey. The word obey means to listen and do. It's two parts. Listen and do. He says, because you didn't obey, now I'm not your God and you're not my people. That is a wonderful thought to think about when we are God's people, being God's people. 
But then he talks about our conduct. We didn't walk in the way. And you see there at the end of 23, because we didn't walk in the way, it will not be well with you. You remember back in verse 4 and verse 8? He talked about what would be profitable and what is not profitable. What is well with us? Obeying the Lord. Listening and obeying is well with us. Now, as we think about 24, notice he, he gives the negative. He says they didn't listen. They didn't incline their ear. In other words, their heart and their ear was attentive to themselves, their desires. They were distracted. They were apathetic. Whatever it was. But notice what they did listen to. The dictates and the counsels of their own heart. And what a shame, because when we drop down in 27 and 28, again, he talks about them not listening, not obeying. And in 28, he says, truth has perished. What a terrible thought that truth could perish in our lives. Well, what's the answer? The great Jeremiah reminds us so much of Josiah when we drop over to Jeremiah, the 15th chapter in verse 16. And notice how he describes the word of the God. Your words were found. I ate them. I know that sounds strange, but I need to ask myself, in 2008, am I going to eat? Am I going to devour? Am I going to consume and live off of the Word of God? Yes. So many of us have committed to do that. We're going to read the Scriptures every day. We're going to learn them. We're going to submit our life to them. Are we going to eat and devour them? Who does that? Notice the rest of Jeremiah 15 and 16. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. It happens when we first give our heart. And when we can honestly say, I rejoice in my heart, the word of God. I rejoice in my heart to live the word of God. Then then it's not cheap talk. Then it becomes profitable living. Then our influence is what it ought to be. Anyone that's watching us, our children, our neighbors, if they'll watch us, we'll help them choose the right God, the almighty God, the only true and living God. But... There has to be a heart that says, Lord, I'll listen and I'll obey. What do you need to escape in 2008? What kind of habit is pulling you away spiritually? Escape it. What kind of addiction? It's just not good. Escape it. Is there any apathy? Have you settled for average? Are you ready to take some steps forward? And not any back. That's what God wants. And as a church family, I believe we can help each other. I believe we can encourage each other. I want to ask you, are you committed to reading scriptures every day? Are you committed to praying every day? Are you committed to serving God by serving others? Are you committed to the work of the church? Will you give at least an hour a week on average, at least an hour a week to the work of the church? 
Will you get involved in a Bible class? Will you study and, and benefit from it and be a benefit to the class? Will you invite someone to worship every week because you care for their soul? Because your heart is devoted to God? This morning, if there's anything that you need to escape, the odds are good. Because of God, you can do it. If we can help you in any way this morning as you come to your God, if you're a believer ready to repent of sins and confess before men that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, won't you be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins to escape the guilt of that sin, the great escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, the Hebrew writer said? Maybe you've already escaped and maybe you've gone right back to the very place from which you escaped. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But yet we're good at doing that. And God's grace is good at relieving us from that again. If you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, let's make 2008 everything God wants it to be in our life. Have you given Him your heart? We can help in any way. Come as we stand as we sing.